0: In this week, Onguithun Aachtawithaan, Voices of 81, we hear from Danny Morrison, a key voice at the time of the 1980 and 1981 hunger strikes during negotiations between the Republican movement and the British government. A challenging but crucial role he reflects in those discussions here, on the intricacies of that process and on the strength and resolution of the hunger strikers as they fought for their demands. In the run-up to the 1980 hunger strike, Myself and Jerry Adams were privately in contact with Cardinal O'Fee, meeting him at his home in the palace in Armagh, and he was then meeting with Humphrey Atkins, who was the uh, British Secretary of State. So there was a line, there was a channel there, uh, if the British wanted to use it. The, before Cardinal O'Fee went to the British, he said, look, I need some, something here you know, to, to add to, the, 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 to, in order to create a circumstance where the, Brit- the British were likely to work with me. So, we approached the IRA and the IRA issued a statement saying that they would cease all attacks on prison officers from the 1st of March 1980. We, were, we got regular reports from Cardinal Maffei and then, I think it was maybe August or September 1980, he was in 10 Downing Street talking to Thatcher and uh, he, she more or less told him, like, okay, we'll give them their own clothes. Now, the five demands were about more than their own clothes, but as far as the public perception was concerned. That was the, the symbol of criminalisation. Ophie o- then set out for Rome and when he was a midter, uh, the British government issued, or the Northern Ireland office, issued a corrective saying, no, 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 not their own clothes. Prison issue civilian type clothes. And this was seen basically as the, as the British digging their heels in. And that's basically that determined that there was going to be hunger strike. I had also been liaison with uh, Mairead Farrell our Armagh, Bobby Sands who was the PRO in the H-Blocks and Brendan Hughes, who was the OC of the prisoners and who was also on the first hunger strike when it began. There had always been, probably from 1972 onwards, there has always been in existence a way for the British government or for the Republican leadership to send messages to each other. Uh, even though the, the British repudiated it and denied it. There's always been these what they call the back channel. In nineteen December, nineteen eighty, I think it's whenever we received word through dairy businessman Brendan Duddy uh, via Martin McGuinness, a message from the British government about the prisoners. Nobody had died at this stage, so th- there was a bit of turn and fro, and eventually the British said that they would send a document to the prisoners for their perusal and then the following day Humphrey Atkins would write, make the statement about prison conditions in the House of Commons. So I had told Brendan Hughes uh, about this and Brendan was aware it was coming but unfortunately on the Thursday night Sean McKenna, one of the seven hunger strikers, his condition seriously deteriorated and uh, Brendan, before the document arrived, called the hunger strike off. And I think inadvertently the British government then misread that, as uh, that the men were never prepared to die; that we were going to go to the, the defence, even though Brenton intervened for to save Sean McKenna's life. I met Bobby Sands for the last time on December the nineteenth, and he was livid. He says because the, 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 already the prison administration would crow on trial, you know they weren't going to die. It was all a bluff, and of course. The way out of it was for the British government to implement the spirit of this document which had arrived in the jail although an hour after the hunger strike ended you know talk about progressive prison regime and using education uh, in lieu of prison work etc but they they, they took a, a hard stance and they ensured that it was unworkable for example we sent we got relatives to bring up prisoners clothes on a Friday when uh, if you were doing prison work four o'clock you'd been taking your own clothes because work would be finished the entire weekend they wouldn't accept the clothes and some cases they said to the prisoners put on the uniform to get the clothes so it was obvious that there was a whole era of triumphalism there supremacy and that's what triggered the second hunger strike so the second hunger strike took place and four prisoners had died by the time that uh, joe mcdonald's condition began to deteriorate the prisoners put out a statement on the 4th of July uh, stating that that the, what the concessions that they were seeking, which would give grant them political status, they had no objections to all of the prisoners benefiting from uh, these concessions and, or prison reforms, if, you, if, you, if the British wanted to put it like that. On the Saturday or the Sunday, uh, Brendan Duddy contacted Martin McGuinness to say that he had been in contact, or the British had been in contact with him, whether or not Brendan phoned the British, the British phoned him. It's never been entirely clear to me, to my satisfaction. We put a test to them saying that, uh, okay, if this is serious and we're dealing with people at the highest level, then let Danny Marshall in to see the hunger snoopers and allow him the use of a telephone. And the word came back uh, at around two o'clock, three o'clock on the Sunday that I, I could go to the jail. I went to the prison, I had because it was a Sunday and there was no normal visits, I had to go through the prison officers' entrance and they were furious. One of them turned around and said, what's that bastard doing in here? This is a sellout. So I was transported to the prison hospital where I met uh, all of the hunger strikers, uh, Bar Martin Hurson, who was in poor, too poor a condition to see me. Joe McDonald was on my right, Joe and I had been interned together and I knew his, his his family very well, I grew up in Corby Way with Greta Healy, his wife, uh, Joe was on my right but in a wheelchair, and uh, Kieran Dockley was there, Tom McElwee, Mickey Devine, Lawrence McKeown, etc., Kevin Lynch, and I explained to them that I was in there, that we had been in contact with the British government, we considered this to be the opening shots in a, in a negotiating process, and I had a telephone outside in which I could phone Jerry Adams, and Jerry Adams was in contact with Martin McGinnis, and Danny, who was in contact with Dolly. We also warned the prisoners that this could be brinkmanship by the British government to make the bring the prisoners so close that their lives are going to be saved, and then pull the mat from under them at the last stage. And they said we're well aware of that. And what we want, instead of uh, an intermediary, we want someone with authority to come in here to tell us what's on offer if we end the hunger strike. So there was a way out for for the British government, sending a senior civil servant, and that way they could cut out the Irish Commission for Justice and Peace, which was hovering around the prison at that time, and that way, if they wanted to, they could bypass the Republican leadership, because Bobby Sands originally asked that myself and Gerry Adams be guarantors of any uh, settlement or any compromise. I went out. I met, first of all, Bick McFarland, then came into the prison hospital. He had been sent for me to Chicagoans, and I explained to Bick what was going on, and this was the opening shots, as far as we were concerned. Bick went in to see the hunger strikers. I went into the doctor's surgery. I phoned Jerry Adams. I says, Right, I'm here in the jail. Any word from, from, from the British side, he says, we've, we've nothing left left, we've nothing yet Just be you on know, standby. I either was just about to put the phone down or put the phone down, and a governor called John Pepper burst into the room and says, What the F are you doing in my jail? Get out. And I was taken by surprise because I had assumed that the prison administration knew why, exactly why I was there, even though it was a civil servant who Met me and brought me into the prison hospital, so I, him and I had a standoff, and he ordered me out of jail, and he got other prison officers to come into doctor doctor's surgery, basically they were drag me if I hadn't left. So I said, "I'm trying. We're trying to sort this of out, save lives here, get out her of my jail." So as I was going out of the jail, uh, the screws that had been saying this is a screw, they were all laughing at me getting thrown out of the jail. Now, having said that, uh, the contact through London with Duddy continued, but they would not put anything on paper. We wanted to know what exactly would happen if the hunger strike ended. It wasn't until 11.30 p.m. on Monday night that Duddy was contacted in, in his diary, which are laws at uh, Galway University. You can see his handwriting. He writes down basically what they're, what they're offering. And they, they also said that you could, you've got until nine o'clock in the morning to, to accept or reject. Now, our problem was that it was the middle of the night, 11.30 a.m., just before midnight. We hadn't got access to the prisoners. We hadn't got access to the hospital until the following day. And they were trying to put it on us. And also we asked them for explanations because the, the, the things were very fuzzy. I mean, what did this mean? What did, you know? The, there would be some changes here. But basically, they were getting their own clothes. and We, we, we look into information and work, etc. But th- there was no substance to it. And we needed more detail. The following day, that was a, that was Monday night. The following day, Tuesday, I think Owen Karn was in Owen Carn was in the prison. I'm maybe getting mixed up here, uh, but we awaited uh, further elaboration, and we we tried to get them to commit. And these these talks went on, and I, I don't know. We got the impression that there was some sort of a division within the British side. Because the way I had been treated in the jail, because it had to be somebody high up got me into the jail on a Sunday, and yet I was thrown out by a deputy governor, John Pepper. Uh, it was obvious that there was a power struggle going on within there. We later, i in mean some years later, spoke to a uh, senior prison officer who said they were ready to walk out en masse if there had been a concession. They would resigned en masse. Uh, and I, we, did, we weren't aware of that at the time. So we were, myself and Gerry Adams, two other members of the sort of the, 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 the committee that was dealing with the negotiations, Martin McGuinness was, was in Derry dealing with Brendan Duddy, we were waiting on a message coming from the British government and nothing came through in the early hours of the Wednesday morning. And then uh, I think it came on the news around 6 or half 6 that Joe Macdonald had died. And um, even though now at, at Joe McDonald's funeral, uh, I wasn't feeling very well, the, there was a, the, the, the police and the British Army attacked the mourners outside St. Agnes's Chapel. People were shot, people were arrested, plastic bullets were fired. And at Joe's funeral, I collapsed. And it turned out uh, I had hepatitis, and I was transferred to a hospital, Cherry Orchard Hospital in Firm in Dublin, for the next month. So I, I was basically out of it at that stage. But there were other initiatives by the International Red Cross uh, to try and reach a compromise. It, but it was quite obvious that the British government, Michael Allison, who was the prison minister, a few days after the death of Joe MacDonald, he flew to Washington and he was interviewed about this, you know, about the fact that there would there have been a, a resolution. And he says it's like, Dealing with hijackers, you string them along until you work with how you can defeat them, and that was the mentality of the British government. Now, Thatcher was aware that the contacts were taking place, so there was also a message came from the British on the Monday night on the Tuesday that uh, if, if if you leak that we're in contact with you, we will deny it and there will be no more communications. Uh, but basically, they were they were all going to their beds and resting. You know, and they were we were up all night awaiting developments because men's lives were were depending were dependent on it. But that was the mentality. I think that the the Foreign Office probably appreciated the damage that the hunger strike was doing to uh, the image of Britain uh, abroad, and they were I think they were pushing for resolution because the the person uh, I think his name was Michael Oatfield, whose whose codename was the Mountain Climber in the book Ten Men Dead by David Burrisford. He was the one that I think got me into the prison. But the NIO were full of Unionists and Tories, and there was no way were they going to make a concession. There is documents that are showing Thatcher amending ideas for how it would end, uh, which would indicate possibly that there was an indication that she would settle depending on what advice she was given. But having said that, we must remember that Thatcher also was the one who said that the hunger strike was the IRA's last card, and oh boy, was she wrong about that. Given the massive increase in support for the republican struggle, given that Bobby Sands's election and Kieran Doherty's election became the uh, you know the, ele- the the platform which pr- projected Sinn Fein and adding a new an electoral strategy to 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 its campaign and to its fate. Uh, given where we are today, we're Sinn Fein's largest party in the north, and according to the opinion poll in the, in the last election in the south, the uh, most popular party in the tw- in the 26 counties. So I mean, today people will remember Bobby Sanz's name, but if, if you go abroad, they won't even know who Margaret Thatcher is. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. friend might mine be being in a in a uh, a souk either in Morocco or Tunisia and somebody heard their accent and says, you, you Irish? And, yeah, yeah. Oh, Bobby Sands, Bobby Sands. You know, so we paid a terrible price for that policy, which was always going to fail. And also, it was, it was disgraceful because the British government knew fine rightly that the prisoners were political. Chris Ryder, the lit journalist Chris Ryder, no friend of the Republican movement, wrote a book about the Mays prison, that's what the title of it was and he interviewed prison governors and prison officers, and the governor turned around and says, well I knew they were political all along, but I was just carrying in orders. And of course, the political status of the prisoners was recognised in an international agreement whenever they were all given early release, whenever the prisoners, including Pat McGee, who uh, was sentenced to like nine life sentences, I think, for planting the bomb at the Grand Hotel and breaking, which almost killed Thatcher in 1984. He was given early release. So, it's, you know, there were, there were political prisoners uh, all along. But, uh, but you see, in negotiating with the British government, really you have to be so sharp because they are well named Perfidious Albion, Treacherous England.